The scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It can be found on page 1003 in the Black Bibles. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Amelia. Thanks, John and Tim for that music. So uh, today is Senior Sunday and my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm one of the pastors here, the pastor to students. And I've been here for four years, so today's Graduating high school seniors were freshmen when I got here, which is very strange to think about. I remember having Jackson Perry and John Duran in my room in high school, Colorado, four years ago. They were much smaller then. So seniors, we're proud of y'all. We're proud of y'all. We love you. And uh, just excited to be here to celebrate you today. So while today's sermon is aimed at graduating uh, seniors, uh, high school seniors and college seniors, uh, this is God's word. And it is applicable to everyone. So I'd encourage all of you to listen in, even though it's not, uh, this sermon wasn't written to you, this is for you. And so I'd ask you to listen and uh, hopeful that God will touch all of our hearts today. On a dark night in the fall of 2011, I was lost in a cave with three of my college buddies. We, uh, we had a house together and uh, the weekend in town was looking a little bit slow so we decided to go try to explore this cave that we'd heard about. And so we drove through these winding back roads in Kentucky and um, finally found the pull off and started kind of bushwhacking back in the woods to try to find the entrance to the cave. Finally found it back in the weeds, this dark hole in the hillside. So we had one flashlight, four guys, we start going down the hole and immediately come to a fork. We go left or right, we chose one. And, Go through a little passage, another fork, left or right. We chose one. It kept going, and then the passage got narrower and went downhill. We go down, 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 and another fork. We take one of the options, and that's when we realized, it occurred to us, we should probably keep track of our turns. And that's when we realized we didn't know how to get out. We hadn't kept track. We were lost. There, deep, underground, we had lost our way. Seniors, you don't have to lose your way in college. Our passage this morning was written to people who were losing their way. They were faced with this choice between continuing and following Jesus or leaving him to rely on other things. And such choices face all of us every day, perhaps nowhere more though than in college but you don't have to get lost. I want your college experience to be joyful, beautiful, where you grow in strength of character and boldness and conviction and become more and more the person God had created you to be. If you're not heading into college now or heading into the next phase of your life, all of us every day, we face these choices to either rely on things other than God to fulfill us or to rely on him and become more the person he made us to be. So, um, I want to acknowledge the fact that it is dark out there. As you look forward into the future, it may seem dark. There is darkness in our own hearts, but the light has come to us. The light flares out brightly in this passage. So two ways to not get lost in college. First, 
hold fast, and second, draw near. Hold fast and draw near. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the chance to hear from your word this morning. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would change us, you would convict us, you would encourage us. Change us, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So point one, hold fast. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This passage is saying that we have a great high priest who is Jesus, the Son of God, and that he has passed through the heavens. Let's unpack that. First, what does it mean when it says that we should hold fast to our confession? Your baptism your first communion, your profession of faith, these are confessions that you are called to hold fast to. And we could sum up everything that you know, we said in those vows with this, that it's a confession that we have a great high priest on the throne of heaven who has done something for us. But what, what has he done? What does this passage mean when it calls Jesus a great high priest? So high priests in Jesus' day, they represented and advocated for a sinful people to their holy God. You see, God wants to be with his people. He loves his people. He wants to be with them. But ever since Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, God placed borders, physical borders, physical barriers around them to show them their distance, their relational and spiritual distance from the holiness of God. And to show them their need for a mediator, for an advocate to cross that boundary. The most tangible example of this border, this boundary in the lives of the people to whom this passage was written was this pair of physical curtains in the temple. They were 30 feet wide, 60 feet long. There's two of them, so together 60 feet by 60 feet. And they were, the fabric was as thick as your hand is wide. These were just massive curtains barring the way between the holy place and the holy of holies, which in the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And nobody could go in there. Nobody could cross that barrier. Nobody, ever, except once a year, the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would sacrifice animals. And the death of these animals represented the deaths that the people deserved to die because of their sin. And then he would take the, the blood from these offerings and he would cross into, with fear and trembling, cross into the holy of holies and he would take some of that blood and he would put it on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. He would put it there representing this is sacrifice to God. That's what the high priest did, presenting this sacrifice to mediate between a holy God and a sinful people. So when our passage says that Jesus is the great high priest, it's saying Jesus did the same thing, but in an ultimate way. At his ascension into heaven, Jesus passed through the heavens, meaning he passed through the impenetrable barrier between heaven and earth, between God's holiness and humanity's sinfulness. He crossed the cosmic boundary that has separated us from God ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion. And he went there to present a sacrifice. When he sat down on the throne of heaven, he presented there before God a perfect and eternal sacrifice for our sins, which is his own body, still scarred 
from the wounds of the cross, perhaps still bleeding from that last ever day of atonement. There's no more atoning that needs to be done, no more sacrificing, because the risen, wounded body of the sacrificed lamb is sitting there on the throne of heaven, bearing witness for all time that he's done everything necessary to make you righteous in God's sight. If that's true, your identity, your purpose, your belonging, your belovedness and value and dignity, your hope, your future are certain. They're unshakable. That's your confession. Hold it fast. But many on the campuses that you're going to, many in the places we work and play, many in our neighborhoods would say that this kind of confession is actually very, very narrow and dogmatic and that it's the enemy of a just and peaceful and tolerant society. And that the better course would be to do away with creeds and confessions. But even those who profess agnosticism or atheism, they have their own confession too. It's mostly unwritten, but it's real. Our culture, this culture that we live in, it has a confession. Even though we're opposed to confessions, we actually have one, an unwritten one. And so I wanted to take some time and actually put words to it. I'm gonna share it with you in a second. As I sat down to write this, it actually wasn't hard because actually part of me believes this confession. And we do too, all of us believe this confession because we live in this culture. It's the air we breathe. And so as I read this, I want you to listen and see if it, if it sounds familiar, if it rings true, this alternative confession. Here it is. I believe in myself, independent and worthy of love, creator of my own identity and happiness. I believe in the spark of my ability, which is my most valuable offering. It was conceived by the power of my effort and born of the struggle. It suffers, it suffers under constant threat of failure, sometimes buried, sometimes dead, may it ever rise again and ascend with me to the heights of success, that I may finally sit down and rest and rule and be perfectly loved by my peers. I believe in the human spirit, the competitive community, the transactionality of relationships, the comprehensibility of the universe, the earnability of virtue, the perfectibility of the body, and the possibility of happiness everlasting. Amen. That's a faith. That's a confession, right? It sounds familiar because that's the air we breathe. Sociologists would call this secular humanism or experiential individualism. It's a well-defined set of beliefs that we all hold and we live by it but it's killing us, it's killing us. We're the wealthiest civilization in the history of the world. We haven't had a war on our turf in 160 years, but we're also somehow the most medicated, anxious, and depressed society in the solar system. It's killing us because all the things that we have a death grip on, they don't care about us and they keep failing us. Our health, our appearance, our status, our money, our careers, none of them hold on to you like you hold on to them. But still, with our lives, we keep professing this faith, this belief that they're gonna make us happy. College is the perfect time, you guys, to hold fast to a different confession. Let me give you one good reason to do that, just one. There's lots of them, but one of them is that when you hold fast 
to the confession you've made about the great high priest, you hold fast to a God who holds fast to you. Because he loves you. Because you belong to him. Even if you've already turned your back on him, the fact that you're a covenant child of this church means in his eyes, you still belong to him. Sailors used to get these tattoos in their knuckles, uh, one letter on each knuckle, and when they held them together, it would say, hold fast, which is a core tenet of life at sea. You know, you can imagine why when the storm is blowing, if you don't hold fast to the rope or the rigging or the rail, you're gonna get blown overboard and drown. Hold fast. But actually, this passage, that's not what this passage is saying. You know, just hold fast to Jesus, hold really tight, or else you're gonna die. You're gonna be lost. It's not saying that. Actually, what it's saying is much more like this story from two climbers on Mount Everest uh, in May of 2007. Nadav Ben-Yehuda, he starts up Mount Everest. Now, Nadav is this young Israeli guy, 24 years old. He's a strong climber. He's doing well, even though on this day in 2007, the weather was deteriorating quickly. It was a terrible storm. Visibility was very low. It's extremely cold. Obviously, he's up at high altitude, but he's made it to within just a couple thousand feet of the summit. And um, the weather gets worse and worse and worse. Still, he keeps climbing because he's motivated by the opportunity to become the youngest Israeli climber ever to summit Mount Everest. So he keeps going. And he passes climber after climber that's turned around, come back, failed their summit attempt, you know, because the weather's too bad, but he keeps going. And then he passes two dead climbers in the snow who've succumbed to the weather. Still, he keeps on going. He gets within 900 feet of the summit. And then he comes upon this climber named Aiden. And Aiden is a Turkish climber, completely unconscious in the snow. His oxygen tank is missing, his gloves are off, his crampons are totally gone, but he's alive. Nadav can tell he's alive. And so immediately he cancels his summit attempt, gets out a piece of rope, ties Ermac to his harness, and starts dragging him down the mountain. And he make it. They get down and they survive. They both have severe frostbite, but they survive. Why? Because Ermac's grip is so strong, this unconscious climber, because he held tightly? No. Because Nadav held tightly to him, held fast to him. If you're in Christ, Jesus has tied himself to you. He has thrown in his lot with you to the end, and he holds you fast right now. And every day you're in college, and every day after that, no matter what twists and turns your path takes, no matter how rough things look, he holds you fast because you belong to him. He loves you. He holds you fast. So hold fast to your confession. Ways to do this. So first way, hold fast to the confession that he loves you. I don't think we can remember this on our own, y'all. I think we have to be going deep, diving into a church community. So whenever you move, whenever you go on campus, those of you who just graduated college, uh, as you move someplace else, find a local church. That's priority number one. Find that church and go there. Show up every week that you're in town, a place that preaches the gospel where you can be known. We need that, those reminders that God loves us. Find a campus ministry that preaches the gospel, that welcomes the outsider, like RUF or Crew or InterVarsity. We need people on campus who understand what our own lives are like to help us follow Jesus there. These are just two ways that God wraps his arms around us to hold us fast and show us that he loves us. 
The second way to hold fast this confession is holding fast to God as Lord. You know, we, we say that, but in so many ways, all of us, me, you, all of us, we struggle to actually acknowledge him as Lord with obedience. And I want to talk about just two ways that I think this is especially hard, especially tempting in college. First, drinking alcohol. God calls us to obey the laws of the civil authorities, which means that when you turn 21 is the first time you even have the possibility of obeying God in the way you drink alcohol. And there's wisdom even then to know whether to do that, how to do that, but until that point, God's word is clear. There's a clear standard. It's calling you to abstinence, to abstain from alcohol. So let me encourage you to take that seriously. It's not about being a good Christian. It's about holding fast to the high priest who holds fast to you. And second thing, sexual intimacy, the second main temptation on the college campus. One of the greatest gifts God has given to the world is a sexual ethic that protects the vulnerable, that honors the body, and that is celebrating the beauty and the goodness of sex. God's word is clear that sex is so good, such a significant expression of love and unity, that it must be protected within the bounds of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. God's word calls it all, all of us, to a clear standard of abstinence from every expression of sexual intimacy that's outside of those bounds. So let me encourage you to take that seriously. It's not about being a good Christian or being a prude. It's about holding fast to the high priest who holds you fast. I know that abstaining from these two things is a harder path. I think probably every time we're called to obey Jesus, it's a call to the harder path, to suffering, really. But I know that suffering is already part of our paradigm, right? Like all of us know how to suffer, to work hard, to do the hard thing in the pursuit of academics or athletics or relationships. Like we're all familiar with this. We can suffer willingly as long as we believe that the cause is worthy. And Jesus is worthy. He has suffered for you and he calls you to suffer for him. Philippians 1, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for the sake. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first way not to get lost in college, hold fast. Suffer well, hold fast to the high priest who holds fast to you. But what about when you fail? You know, all of us do many times in college, after college, before college. What happens when you fail or what happens when either your failures or your successes they just leave you feeling like a dried out husk, empty, alone. I think you, uh, you might feel, those of you who are about to head into college, like college is this four year testing period where God's just waiting for you to, you know, you get drunk or you sleep with someone or you fail out of a semester and that's it, you know, you've lost, you're done. Lost in the cave, no way out. But especially then, that's when God calls you to draw near to him. Draw near to the throne of grace. So point two, draw near to the throne of grace. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's gonna be times in college, in life, many of us are here in this place right now where we need help. When everything externally is going great, but inside you feel lost. When your mental health is falling apart, when your physical health is falling apart, when people ridicule you for your faith in Christ, when your obedience to Jesus causes you to suffer, when you've done something you're deeply ashamed of, or when someone else does something deeply harmful to you. Holding fast as a Christian doesn't look like not needing help. Holding fast as a Christian does not look like not needing help. Actually, it looks like admitting you need help and drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. This passage gives us a reason to draw near. It says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This means that your advocate in the throne room, he gets you. He understands what it's like to be you. When you're in a bind that you think nobody's gonna understand, he understands. And he doesn't condemn you. In fact, he has sympathy for you, compassion for you, even when you're guilty. That's the kind of person that you want on the throne of your life, right? Because Jesus, our great high priest, is on the throne. God rejoices to call you beloved, his child righteous. When you're at your worst, when you're ignoring him, when you're ashamed, he calls you his beloved child. If Christ is there, the throne of heaven will always be a mercy seat for you where you will find grace and help in time of need. So don't stay away. If you're here this morning and you look back in the last few years or months of your life and you would say, yeah, I haven't been following God. I have been holding fast to a secular confession. Whatever it is, my encouragement to you is today, draw near. The time is now. Now you can draw near. The throne of grace is a throne of help for you. Even if you feel too, gir- too dirty, too guilty, you're not. You can't get so dirty, so guilty, so anything that God's grace for you runs out. Usually in the summer when I get home from work, uh, my favorite thing to do, I'll just kind of go straight to the backyard and that's where my wife and my three little kids are. And it's a nice scene, you know, it's sunny and the, the splash pad is going and my three kids are running around playing and my wife, my lovely wife, Mary's there sitting in a camp chair and so I just go back and it's a nice scene. And then comes James, this 25 pound ball of sweaty boy flesh, just running across the yard. And he's like totally soaked. Uh, He's got bug spray all over him. He's probably got uh, orange popsicle all dripping down his front. He's muddy because it's a splash pad. The yard's all muddy. So he's filthy and he's bolting for Mary. And he just runs and jumps at her. And what does she do? (laughs) She opens her arms. She welcomes him in because she loves him. He's her son, and she's gonna give him a bath, but she welcomes him with open arms. No matter how dirty you get, Jesus welcomes you with open arms. I'm not saying your sin is just topical like the popsicle juice on James. It's it's deep, it's pervasive, it's soul deep. I understand that, and Jesus does too. He knows how to clean your soul. He knows how to wash you clean. Especially when you failed, you can draw near. I think this looks different for maybe two different kinds of people in this room. Um, some of us, you like to stay nice and clean. 
maybe you know that like God's standards are unattainable, but at least you meet your own standards, right? And for, for us, I think that our perceived goodness is a barrier to accessing the grace of God in our lives. We need to come to grips with the reality that actually we're, we're not okay on our own. And I think one of the beautiful, simple ways to do that is to go to Matthew 5. Read Matthew 5 and you, you Jesus in this, in this uh, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and he takes all these, some of the big, heinous, bad sins and he pulls them down to the heart and shows us how in all of our hearts the exact same thing is going on there. So you can't read this, this chapter of scripture, Matthew 5, and walk away feeling like, you know, you're, you're pretty good. You got your act together. Actually, it's gonna make you feel like a wretched sinner. <laughs> and the point of that is not that you'd stay there and feel wretched, but that you would come with confidence to Jesus and confess your sin and know that you have his forgiveness. For others, though, you're more likely to face your shortcomings in more obvious ways. Your sins will be more obvious to you and to others um, maybe, you know, looking back in the last few years, you would already say, yeah, I haven't really been following Jesus in high school or in college. Um, you know, maybe you, you've already been drinking in high school. You plan on drinking in college. You know, uh, not that that's the only sin, but just as one way to tell if this is you. If that's you, I want to encourage you with the truth that the hound of heaven will pursue the covenant children to the ends of the earth. <laughs> and that's a good thing. If you are a covenant child, God's not gonna stop pursuing you. So even if you ignore him, he's not gonna ignore you. And when you feel the conviction of the spirit, when you feel that pain of guilt, that is not meant to push you away from God. It's meant as an invitation because he has a balm for your soul. So come near to the throne of grace, not with shame, not with head hanging, but with confidence. God isn't surprised at your sin. It's not a surprise to him. He doesn't want you to come with, you know, head hanging and a penance. Remember the prodigal son, right? The pain of your guilt is meant to send you running to Jesus and know that your God is running to you to welcome you in love. So turn to him quickly, confess your sin and rest in the love of God for sinners. So as you can tell, uh, my friends and I, we made it out of the cave. We survived, which is good. Um, I don't go near that many caves now in my life. When I do, if I ever go into a cave, I still feel kind of nervous, afraid I might get lost. But seniors, uh, high school, grad, uh, college seniors, you, wherever you are, whatever transition you're facing, you don't have to feel nervous. You don't have to feel afraid. There's nothing there strong enough to tear you away from the high priest who holds you fast. So hold fast to him, draw near to him, and you will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, your promises. Thank you for drawing near to us and holding us fast. I ask, Lord, that especially for these graduating seniors, but for all of us, you would make the next few years of their lives a testament to your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy, your strength. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.